When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Sunday night's edition of the Dunked On Basketball Podcast. We've got a full week of playoff action, and uh, Danny and I are going to get right to it. Uh, let's start with Wizards-Raptors. The Wizards beat the Raptors 93-86 in overtime, taking game one on the road. And this is a frustrating offensive game for both teams. Uh, Danny, did you uh, have any observations on this one? How much were you able to see? I was only really able to see the fourth quarter in overtime because I was headed over to Oracle to cover the Warriors game. But, yeah, I mean, offensive execution to me seemed like the story. And it's not only that they were missing shots, but that they weren't particularly getting good shots. And those are two different things. But in this game, we saw both of them from what I saw. Yeah, I mean, the Toronto backcourt really, really struggled. Lou Williams was 4 of 16. DeRozan was 6 out of 20. Cal Lowry... Two out of ten struggled with foul trouble and then ended up falling out as he, uh, Brad Beal waved goodbye to him when he uh, fouled him out in an and one jumper after I think Casey tried to put him on Beal to save him from foul trouble. Um, but the problem wasn't the defense for the Raptors in this game. Uh, the big problem was that they just couldn't score. The other big issue that I saw in this game was that Washington managed to turn the game around. Toronto was up by four after one, 23-19. Washington turned it around and went up into the half, up by five, and the big run was made when they uh, opened the second, or I don't know if they opened it, but shortly into the second quarter, they went with Paul Pierce at the four, Otto Porter at the three, and that lineup ended up killing the Raptors. They, the Raptors, I think, had Tyler Hansbrough in, uh, defensively at, at the four, uh, but it, it might have been Patterson as well. But for some reason, they decided to have that guy guard Pierce, who's much more threatening than Otto Porter is. Ideally, you would want to have the big guy on Porter since he's not as much of a threat, especially from three-point range. And then that guy who has more help instincts can help out more, and you leave a wing on Pierce. So... The Raptors didn't do that, and there was really about a four or five minute stretch. Pierce hit a couple of threes. He really had a great game. He was seven out of ten, four seven on threes, and 
a few of them were in that stretch. And that, frankly, was the stretch that ended up costing Toronto the game. Yeah, that's a great point, and how Toronto chooses to defend the lineup, because I'm pretty confident we're going to see it moving forward, is a really big storyline in this series, because yeah, that's an adjustment. Yeah. The other thing that I want to know that, is... Well, to, to, to finish that point up, yeah. they actually changed it up in the second half then right. and, and, and defended it correctly, but, you know, that's a game that it may have cost them. I mean, obviously, there's a million other factors. You know, they, they couldn't score themselves. I mean, you never want to look at one stretch, but that was one very clearly clear way in which uh, Dwayne Casey was not able to react properly and it cost his team the lead in a game they ended up losing in overtime. I also want to mention that Drew Gooden getting crunch time minutes at this point in his career was one of the bigger surprises that I've had recently despite being somebody who (laughs) covered a fair amount of the Wizards this year. Yeah well you know it's funny because I, I was a little critical of that as well. I mean he first got minutes at the expense of Nene down the stretch and then uh, it was at the expense of Gortat in overtime, but the Raptors were actually sticking to him like he was somebody. <laughs> and when he was doing that, all right, leave him out there. You know, I mean, if it were me, I would have said, all right, make some shots. It's mostly going to be long twos, made some threes, but he's not some amazing shooter. He's someone that you can kind of live with that. I mean, at least make him make a couple. Um, but so that was an issue. And then also the other thing that killed the Raptors was second chance points by the Wizards. The Wizards got 19 offensive rebounds to 38 defensive rebounds, so a 33% or a little over 33% uh, offensive rebounding rate for, uh, and I'm sorry, exactly 30, 33% offensive rebounding rate for the Wizards. And Patrick Patterson was someone who really struggled. He was in down the stretch a lot with Amir Johnson and he has never been a great defensive rebounder and also not someone who uh, is real good at challenging shots and then trying to get back to the glass. So that was also something that hurt the Raptors in this game. Yeah, it definitely did, and it feels like I have to mention also that the Raptors starters went 0 for 11 from 3, and there are multiple reasons for that, but at the same point, it is unsustainable, so they can take something in that they went to overtime with their starters making zero three-point shots. Yeah, and uh, I mean, to me, we can't criticize the, the Raptors' defense too much in this game, uh, you know, they, because they did pretty well on Wall and Beal. Wall was 5 of 18, Beal was 6 out of 23. Uh, they were 1 of 9 from 3 combined, only took 5 free throw attempts between them. And the Raptors did a nice job of blitzing the pick and roll and taking the ball out of Wall's hands, making... Uh, the Wizards, other players beat them, and the Wizards, never known for their spacing, had trouble with that. It was posited that part of the blitzing the pick and roll was part of the reason they struggled on the offensive glass, uh, which I think is a good point. But you also just probably need to have the big make more of an effort to get back into the play. Um, I think the the defense was pretty good, and the only thing I would say is you know Otto Porter, thirty three minutes, only took five shots, so. If they're going to play with him a lot in a small lineup, which they did, and he's going to play 33 minutes, you need to make him make some shots and and have him be the guy who's going to beat you. Yeah, uh, definitely agree with that. Do you want to move on to the next game? Well, I mean, I I guess the question is, how can the the Raptors do a little better offensively? You know, I mean, I think part of it's going to be making shots. Um, That's that's one thing. Lou Williams, especially, you know, he was – he is the only guy who had a positive plus minus for the Raptors, but he still struggled, and he had a lot of plays. He has this this 
idiosyncrasy, I, and, and I guess, which has been pretty effective, where he'll drive, feel contact on the perimeter, maybe 20 feet from the basket, and then he'll just throw up a shot and get a shooting foul. A, you know, not really a legitimate attempt at a shot, yeah. but just feeling contact and trying to get the call. He got that call all during the regular season, tried it about four or five times in this game, and couldn't get to the line uh, hardly at all. He took he took zero free throw attempts. So that, that was another little nugget that stuck out. But I think the Raptors in a must win. Uh, they can't help but shoot this badly. But Washington is a very good defensive team. And uh, I think this... The, the Raptors were the number three offense in the league. They just are going to have to shoot better or they're going to be done in this series. Yeah, I, I think that's really the key part of it. And also, yeah, just keep, as you said earlier, keeping the Wizards off the offensive glass because the Wizards in a you know in a normal offensive set weren't getting a whole lot done. But when you get second chance opportunities, generally you're going to get better looks than on in a general half-court set. So let's move on to Golden State and New Orleans. You and I were both there for this one. Uh, what did you take away from this game? Uh, do, you, do you think the Pels uh, are going to be able to make it a series or not? I think that they're going to make individual games competitive. I still don't. I don't think that the Warriors are at risk of losing the series. But for me, the big takeaway from this is that I feel like we're going to see a lot more of Anthony Davis at center because what happened in the game, and, and Davis said this after the game, was that putting him on a power forward like Draymond Green, who spends time at the three-point line, takes him away from the paint and there isn't a truly effective way that that I can think of if they're playing him with another, you know, with with let's say Omer, that you can structure their defense in a way to not do that. And so I think they're going to play him more at center. There are some trade-offs there, but I feel like that actually will work better for the Pelicans against this specific Warriors team. I thought Kerr did a great job with the lineups and the matchups in large part, uh, making some adjustments to the playoffs. Number one, as we predicted, as soon as they brought in Ryan Anderson and moved Davis to center, uh, Kerr went straight to Draymond Green at at center and Barnes at the four. Ryan Anderson posted up a couple times to try and take advantage of Barnes and frankly took a couple of pretty miserable right shoulder fadeaways, which is usually what his post-ups turn into. So he wasn't able to take advantage and then, he was pretty much a traffic cone defensively, although he, he did provide a pretty good effort, but he just doesn't have the athleticism to protect the rim at an NBA level. So that worked out really well. And then when Davis got into foul trouble or somewhat te- uh, coach-imposed foul trouble in the third quarter, Kerr brought, went, again went with Green at center, and that was when it was Anderson and Ashik, And that was even more trouble for New Orleans because Ashik has no, no chance of guarding green out by the three-point line and he's not going to post up green on the other end so that was a great matchup for um for golden state and they're able to get ashik off the floor and really anderson and ashik i think they combined for a total of five points uh in quite a few minutes they um and and then uh you know if those guys don't do better they're either going to have to come off the floor and in that case New Orleans had some success switching out in the perimeter with Davis and Dante Cunningham Mm -hmm. in the front court. Uh, Or, you know, New Orleans is just going to lose this series if those guys can't be more effective than they were. Yeah, and the other huge potential storyline of this game is Tyreek Evans had to to come out. He had a, a, what they're now saying is a bone bruise in his knee. And 
that's another major thing in this series because his offense and his role and how everything works for the Pelicans is just so pivotal for their success because they have to play their best basketball in order to beat the Warriors, and Tyreek Evans is a key part of that. Yeah, and especially if you're going to go with Anthony Davis at the five, Evans is essential because the Pelicans, especially with Drew Holiday coming back from injury, don't really have another guy on the roster who really scares you in the pick and roll that's going to make that big come and help out. And that that can open up Anthony Davis's rolls to the rim or his pop game if he's in there with Ashik. Evans is really essential as the ball handler there. And, I, I mean, you'd have to assume he's at the very least going to be limited. He told ESPN's Mark Stein after the game that he heard a pop and he'd never felt anything like it before. You can't imagine that he's going to be anything close to 100%, at least in Game 2. And, you know, if the Warriors go up 2-0 in this series, I mean, what is it, like six teams that have come back from that in the last 30 years or something? I mean, it's it's not not going to look too good for them uh, if they can't steal one in Game 2. Yeah, absolutely, especially because they'd have to win one out of two remaining games in, in Oracle while also winning all of their home games. And as you said, the the challenge for New Orleans, and this has been true all year, is that they don't force you into many difficult choices other than Anthony Davis, who does that all the time. Omer has a lot of strengths, but his weaknesses are that he you can't use him to exploit a defense that goes small on him because he just doesn't have the offensive game for it. Ryan Anderson has strengths, but he has trade-offs with, on defense. And so they just don't have that, if you want to call it that third guy, but wherever you want to go on the list, that makes you recalibrate, that makes you that makes you game plan around them. And so that allows teams to focus so much more on the things that they do have that are substantial positives. Well, so that, that's where we are from, from the Pelican standpoint. I guess I, I will say the bright spots for the Pelicans is they only scored 13 points in the first quarter. After that, they're able to stay pretty even, although they did trail by 25 in the third. So you can look at maybe the fact that they came back as – the, the result of it kind of being more of a blowout, although the Warriors were playing their starters pretty much throughout. Uh, Holiday is really on a 20-minute limit. There's a hope that he can start to increase that, but he was only two out of seven. He did a nice job on Steph when he was out there. Norris Cole uh, played 30, 34 minutes, and he actually did a nice job on Curry as well, but only three of 10. He's not really quite a rotation caliber uh, player uh, offensively in big minutes. So that's going to be a problem. They're really going to struggle to score if he has to play a lot. Um, but they should take away at least some hope out of the fact that they defended the Warriors pretty well overall. Uh, Steph Curry had 34 points on 28 shooting possessions, which is good but not unbelievable, but only five assists for Curry. And I think that they found something switching out on him with Davis and with Cunningham and Curry, surprisingly, was not able to create much of much of a shot against those guys. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And he, they, they were kind of doing an interesting thing in those circumstances that I think they were that on, they were trying to kind of push Curry in a different way than most teams do. They were more scared of the of the three point shot than most teams are. So I was a little bit surprised by that. I also want to give Quincy Pondexter credit. He started the game on Curry and did, did an all right job. I mean, that's when the Warriors exploded, but. He had. I thought he played a pretty good all-round game. The stats, the stats are there too. But from the for me for the eye test, he felt like he belonged out there, which was something that was not true of every Pelican the entire game. 
Yeah, he played 37 minutes, uh, had uh, 20 points on 16 shooting possessions. So, yeah, and nine rebounds, six assists, which is surprising from him. So, yeah, he really played a great game. Um, You know, probably not something that he's going to be able to repeat from an offensive standpoint. Um, But, you know, there is some hope that the Pelicans can stop the Warriors a little better. But if Tyreek Evans is out, it's hard to imagine them scoring well enough to really uh, be a threat in this series. Yeah, I agree. But hopefully we get more halves like Anthony Davis's second half because even if they lose this pretty quickly, which is what I think is going to happen, you know, with or without Tyreek, just because the talent disparity is there, I loved, especially in person, seeing those flashes again of how amazing a player he is and what he can still do to grow because he still has... When you watch him, you you see all the the ways he can impact a game, but not only with surrounding talent that really is more tuned to his strengths and a philosophy that fits it, but he has he's going to grow a lot as a player. I, I've, I've covered Stephen Curry since his rookie year, and I think about what he's done, and while it's different for bigs than for point guards, it's just so tantalizing. He's such an amazing, amazing talent. Yeah, you know, that's one other thing we didn't mention. It's another reason to take a little heart for the Pelicans. Back when I used to play uh, basketball at the park before my knees were shot and I was growing up, guys would get out on the court and some of the old heads would be like, oh, this is just a self-check. And sure enough, you know, you would just kind of not really play defense with the guy and he'd go into all these gyrations and then like lose it out of bounds or throw up some wild shot without you really even having to stop him. And Anthony Davis had like a little bit of self-check in the first three quarters. He struggled to finish at the rim. He fumbled a couple of passes he missed some wide open shots, and then he came to life in the fourth quarter. But a lot of it, frankly, wasn't anything that the Warriors were doing. He was just wasn't able to capitalize on the opportunities that he usually did. So, I mean, if he were able to do that, he might have had forty. Yeah, absolutely. And what and what's hard to explain about this game in some ways is that it was, in some ways, a typical Warriors game of this year where they they go to a big lead and then they frittered away. But usually that's the backups who are doing it. In this game, it wasn't necessarily the starters as a core the whole time, but it was many starters. The The backups didn't play that many minutes. And so New Orleans can also take heart in the fact that they came back and they, they made those runs against something much closer to the Warriors' full squad than what teams who did that throughout the regular season did. For the Warriors, we'll keep it brief here. One area of concern, 40 minutes for Curry, 42 minutes for Draymond Green. They Kerr really had to come back with both of those guys pretty quickly, especially Green in the second quarter. He you know, really only rested for less than three minutes each time. That's a lot of minutes for a guy who depends on energy. I mean, I think Kerr would like to have him at about 38 if he could, but there really wasn't anyone else who was going to be able to guard Anthony Davis really on the roster, especially if Bogut were out. Um, and if Davis was playing at power forward, you can't really guard him with Bogut. So, yeah, I mean, it was uh, that's a concern. Sean Livingston wasn't very good. Uh, Andre Iguodala only had, uh, he, he was minus 11, only at eight points. So really the bench needs to play better for the Warriors in game two. Yeah, and fortunately for them, they have time to figure it out. And you sometimes that happens when you go into the playoffs and they the fact that they're probably going to win this series means that they one of their goals can be something that most teams have to do before the start of the playoffs which is to get those players in the right place let's move on to 
Bulls Bucks as a Chicago guy, I was very encouraged by how Derrick Rose looked. He was he was one guy, and Blake Griffin is another. We'll get to him, who really just looked like he was playing a completely different game in Game One of the playoffs. He was just incredibly aggressive off the dribble in the second quarter. We saw some changes of direction from him, uh, just throwing his body around with abandon. Even in the floor game, you used to see these amazing bursts for him where there'd be a loose ball and he'd accelerate past three dudes to get it. We didn't see much of that in the regular season. We saw that in this game. And he was outstanding not only getting to the basket, his three-point shot for some some reason looked totally different. We I'd complained on here that he's sort of turning to the side, should stop taking him. He looked much more under control, shooting a little bit more of a set shot on the way up, jumping and landing in the same spots, facing the same direction. And he shot three out of seven on threes, even though I think pretty much each of them was a hard attempt. Um, And he also had seven really nice assists. He's fantastic at jumping in the air and then finding shooters on the weak side. He was able to do that very consistently. And that was very helpful in the Bulls knocking down 12 threes out of 32 attempts in this game. Did I hallucinate, or did we see Miritich and Noah play together a little bit, and Gasol and, and Taj Gibson play together a little bit? Because I, I, uh, you, I, you did, you, you didn't hallucinate, but you didn't see uh, Miritich play a single minute at the four. In, in oh the yeah, game, that's which, what it was. He was playing. Yeah, okay, he's playing three. Yeah, he played. He played backup three, and you know only thirteen minutes. Really, I think he's totally wasted there. I mean, it's not like Gasol was playing some amazing game. He was five out of seventeen in. 36 minutes. So this version of Derek Rose, who looked amazing. I mean, we'll see, you know, he's, he's been very inconsistent game to game. He may not have his legs quite as much in game two. We'll see, but uh, him playing together and pick and pops with Miritich or just utilizing that spacing would be unbelievable. If Miritich is playing the floor, otherwise he's just kind of a guy who stands out there and shoots because he doesn't have the quickness to get by opposing threes when he's be, uh, being guarded by them. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. And he's not helping their spacing in the same way because if you have a three on him, then the four is doing what the four usually does, so you're not pulling anybody out of the lane. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. That's why he's such a powerful weapon at the four. But you know, that said it was it was a pretty encouraging game. Jimmy Butler was really good. He had twenty five points on eighteen shooting possessions, so extremely efficient. Shot the ball very well on his jumpers, got to the basket, uh, and he played great defense on Giannis, who was only 4 out of 13 from the field and and scored 12 points. And Giannis is what I wanted to get to. In that I, I'm a fan of his. I'm the sponsor of his basketball reference page. But it's hard for him to have a sustained positive impact on the offense when his jumper is not falling. And for the most part this season, you and I have talked about it before, his jumper isn't falling. And it's it, it's hard for me because you can see what he can become, but the jumper is a mandatory part of any real high-level success. I will say that the Bucks got a little unlucky on open threes in this game. Ursan Ilyasova especially missed quite a few. He was only one out of five, and, and most of his attempts were pretty open. Uh, O.J. Mayo was really bad, played 23 minutes. He was one out of seven. And one of my criticisms of Coach Kidd in this game was Chris Middleton only played 34 minutes. And he played, I think, only the last three minutes of the fourth quarter, really for no reason, especially when the other perimeter backups were not playing well at all. Jared Dudley, only 12 minutes, mostly as a small ball backup four. And the Bulls were able to go at him in the post reasonably well. 
Uh, John Henson also struggled a, a lot on the defensive glass. Uh, and he's you know kind of a skinny guy playing center. You would expect to see that a little bit, although he did well on the offensive glass. Um, and then Michael Carter-Williams, also an identical 4-13 to Giannis. He was just shooting mid-range jumpers and bricking them. This is really the perfect team for the Bulls to play against because they uh, the Bulls still do a great job of taking away the three-point line. They do a great job of taking away the rim, and the Bucks don't have anyone who can make a mid-range shot. So uh, it's going to be tough for the Bucks to score in this series, I think. And and they even the Bulls struggle to turn the ball over, but the Bucks are kind of young enough and lack the spacing that they're still going to turn it over a fair amount anyway. And I think the Bucks are going to struggle to score in this series. Yeah, I definitely agree, and I'm excited in a way to see how Kidd adjusts. I think he did a, a good job in, in Brooklyn last year, and I think that he has the, the capability of doing it. The downside is he doesn't have a, a full you know full complement of talent without Jabari there, but I think that they can make this more competitive, even though I think exactly what I thought at the beginning of the series, that Chicago would win it without too much of a struggle. All right, why don't we move on to... Our next game, uh, which I did not get a chance to see much of, this was uh, Dallas-Houston. So I'll ask you a couple of things. Number one, like everyone was talking about that Dwight looked really good. Didn't have the most amazing stat line. Didn't play a ton of minutes in this game. Uh, why was everyone saying he was good, or maybe do you not agree with that? I completely agree with it. Dwight, it was... Again, it was more about what you saw. The way that he moved, the way that he was affecting plays, particularly on the defensive end, it wasn't, you know, peak Dwight or anything like that, but it was, I think it was closer than I saw from him at all this season. And that's a really huge part of what made the Rockets do well in the beginning. I, I, a term that I like to use for when basketball is going well is a positive feedback loop. And so in basketball, playing well on one end often makes your life easier on the other because if you're making a lot of shots, then you get more half-court defensive opportunities. And if you're getting more stops, you can get more transition looks. In the first quarter, the Rockets did that about as well as I've ever seen them do it because they were getting stops on the defensive end, they were getting transition looks, and they were generating fouls. So they were doing a lot of things right. Second quarter, they that slowed down a little bit, partially because... Rajon Rondo had a kind of surprisingly good, at least scoring quarter. So Dallas kind of cut back on that feed, on that feedback loop. And then in the second half, the Rockets just, I think they just showed that they were a better team, not a substantially better team, but a better team. And some of that was unsustainable awesomeness offensively from Corey Brewer. He had a couple shots that he doesn't usually make, particularly from three. He also had an and one that was pretty impressive. And the other notable thing for me granted as the maybe the leader of his bandwagon is Clint Capella not only got minutes but Clint Capella played pretty well and he got stats but he also he showed good effort out there and he was kind of a thing that Houston has been looking for which is a guy who can do some of what Dwight does and hopefully doesn't murder you with terrible free throws he was two of four in the game so better than usual for him and that is notable because if he, he won't give you 16 tonight, but if he can give you 10 a night, that's huge for them. Yeah. So let's run down a few of the, the important stats. Uh, James Harden, 24 points on only 11 field goal attempts, got to the line 17 times, um, hit 15 of those. Howard did have five blocks in his 17 minutes. And our, our buddy Seth Partno tweeted that he had, 
just an unbelievable game in his rim protection statistic. I think saved like nine points or something like that. Uh, Sorry, Seth, if I'm not quite uh, transcribing what your stat does as well as I should. Um, And, yeah, I mean, I I think Capella is someone who can have some success against this Mavericks team because they're not a team that's going to bludgeon him inside. He's a guy who has center skills but really more of a power forward body, especially from a strength standpoint, and Dallas not going to be a team that's going to take advantage of that too much. So, yeah, I think he can continue to be a positive contributor, uh, assuming that he can execute defensively. Yeah, and the other thing that I saw was Chandler Parsons didn't look close to 100% yet. It looked He looked especially tentative on the defensive end. That Granted, that's Chandler Parsons. That happens sometimes. But Dallas is going to need him. He's a very important cog in their offense particularly if Rondo or Monte is not having a strong game. And he, in this series in particular, he needs, he needs to do it on both ends. Who did, who did Houston have on Monte else? Was that a Rizzo most of the time? Yeah. From what I recall, it was that that's, that's what I'm thinking was there for the most part, though I can honestly not remember every possession, but I think they did lean that way as much as they could afford to, which was most of the time. Yeah, Reza's a nice matchup on Ellis. Uh, he, he does well on smaller guards by going over the pick and roll and still staying close enough that he can bother the jump shot from behind with his length. That's a shot that Monte Ellis really enjoys taking, that you know sort of 20-footer, 18-footer coming off a pick. Uh, and then you know Houston can kind of leave their big back, and Ariza can still bother that shot. So you're not getting a great shot out of the pick and roll with Ellis. He was only 5 of 16 I don't know how much of that was due to Ariza's efforts, but uh, you'd stand a reason some. But uh, maybe we should move on to a game that I did actually watch and I won't just completely speculate about. <laughs> but where's the fun in that? I mean, granted that, ga- that, granted, that game was plenty interesting, and so now we're getting into the first game of Sunday, and that was Cavs-Celtics. you want to talk about it first? Yeah, so... Uh, a few things that I took away from this, and you know, people will note that we're kind of being a little more critical of of coaching moves and, and, and various players, but you know, that's kind of what the playoffs is. The playoffs is a crucible. A seven game series is going to show your weaknesses and the weaknesses that you might lose because of. And if you're a player, you know, if you can't shoot, it's going to get exposed. If you can't defend, it's going to get exposed. If you can't defensive rebound, it's going to get exposed. Coaching wise, if you have five minutes of bad matchups or or a lineup out there that doesn't really have a plausible way to score, it's going to get exposed. And those five-minute stretches can cost you game in the in the playoffs. And that's what I love so much about the playoffs, is that it really exposes things. Teams are so locked in, whereas during the regular year, you can get away with maybe playing a guy who doesn't shoot, you know, because you're not playing a team over and over again. They're not going to adjust and then just not guard you. You can't drill it into any but the smartest players say, all right, we're just going to not guard this dude, you know, because you're seeing a different opponent every night. In the playoffs, you're seeing the same opponent every night, and they're going to figure out what you do well and, and what you don't. So it, what that brings me to some of the things that Brad Stevens did in this game. I, I thought that David Black coached a really nice game and that Stevens really, you know, by not starting Isaiah Thomas and not starting Jay Crowder, puts the Celtics at a disadvantage. Instead, they start Avery Bradley and Marcus Smart in the backcourt, and then Evan Turner at the three. 
the, you can tell what the thinking is there. You know, it's not like this. Like Stevens is an idiot. The thinking is, all right, we don't have enough playmaking with Smart and Bradley, so we got to have another guy out there in Turner who can handle the ball and, and create some shots. But the problem is Turner doesn't create anything very well. And the other problem is that he can't guard LeBron James at all. LeBron went into the post in this game a lot, much more than we saw in the regular season. We talked about in the preview that he doesn't do that that much anymore, and I think he, that he's another guy who kind of turned it up a little bit in the playoffs, and Boston just had zero chance of guarding his post-ups, and when they sent help, it was coming from obvious places. He was able to pick out the shooters on the weak side very easily. Crowder was much better against him, and then Isaiah Thomas was pretty good too. I mean, he had 22 points and got to the line eight times, made all eight of them, so he was able to score pretty well and run the offense, although he did have five turnovers and Amon Schumper did a nice job on him. I don't see if you're Boston how you're going to score well enough without him on the floor, and you also want to get Crowder out there. So I think Stevens really needs to start those guys in game two. Turner should really only be out there when Thomas isn't, when you really just desperately need someone who can dribble the ball and create something. And uh, and then the other, the last thing I saw from Stevens was, for some reason he had Isaiah Thomas guarding Kyrie Irving the entire game when you have Avery Bradley and Marcus Smart on the team and playing at the same time. He had Avery Bradley guarding Shumpert or guarding J.R. Smith. Like, you know, there's really no reason for that. Like, why is Avery Bradley even on the team? Why is he playing unless you're going to have him guard Kyrie Irving, who was absolutely killing it in this game? So I I definitely think uh, Stevens has some low-hanging fruit that he can adjust to in game two. Yeah, I I particularly agree on the Isaiah Thomas defensive assignments. I was floor during the game that that happens so frequently and I would like to correct you that Evan Turner can create he just creates terrible mid-range shots that he's happy to shoot and that's a little bit of that's a little bit of downside but the Celtics had a few things that I thought were kind of promising Jonas Drebko played pretty well in in the minutes that he played it wasn't always necessarily the highest leverage situations just with how the game turned out and I liked a little bit of what I saw from Jay Crowder I agree with you completely that they should shift the starting lineup to do that. And what was also shocking in some ways to me was that Tyler Zeller played so little. The Celtics, as a running storyline, have very little rim protection. And my personal sense is that he's their best rim protector, though that's very, very faint praise. And to see him, yeah, only, play, to see him only play 15 minutes in a game where you have perimeter players who can drive to the hole at will on you who are also benefiting from easier defensive assignments in the case of actually both LeBron and Kyrie. And that made, I think that made it harder for them and it was plenty hard already. Well, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that a little bit. And again, you know, Boston's not winning this series and I don't want to be too critical of the way they played. I mean, I think, you know, they could have done things better, but you know, there's just too much talent on, on Cleveland and Boston, as you noted, has known to protect the basket defensively and they don't, they have, you know, Cleveland as the three best players in this series. So, um, but I, I don't think Zeller would help that much. I think I like Linux better because he's someone, especially if the, if Cleveland is going to start Mozgov, he can space out to the three point line, make him guard out there. I, I think the Linux Jarebko combination is the one that I like the most. And I think, Turner and Bass, especially together, are not really going to be uh, 
a great combination. Yeah, the challenge for me with Brandon Bass in the series is he's not a bad basketball player, but I think that he's kind of out of place. It feels that way with all of the almost all of the Boston bigs, but Turner, if particularly, I would say I, I there you you can't have him guarding LeBron James in this series. So maybe you do that sort of counter thing where you try to play him when LeBron isn't on the floor, but you you I, it's just not a good series for him. No, you're right. It's, if it were me. I would just be trying to outscore him. I would go Jarebko, go with go with Olenek, and I think my backup defender on James after Crowder would be Marcus Smart. Now, Smart could very easily get into foul trouble. I could, I could see that happening. But he did well when he was switched on to James a couple of times. And what's more, just get Marcus Smart some experience doing that. Why not? Like, see, see how it goes. Um but so for Cleveland, I mean, what what did you see for them in this game? Are you were you happy with their performance? What what can they improve? What did they do well? I think what they did well is something they've done well since the Labatical, which is that Kyrie Irving is his best role is to be a primary scorer that is not the primary ball handler. I mean, he can run it at, at moments, but you don't put everything through him. And he was helped a lot by the defensive matchup. I also really like that while Love, his shot wasn't falling for much of the game, especially early on, he was staying active on the boards particularly, and he was passing the ball pretty well. And when you think about this Cleveland team when they're succeeding, whether whether it's in a game like this or against substantially better competition, I feel like those key components have to be there. And so seeing it in game one was a, a pretty notable positive for them. I'm also going to be intrigued by how they manage the minutes for Mozgov and Tristan Thompson. They're obviously both going to have to play a lot, but how they see them in terms of replacing one another, complementing one another, is something that I'm going to be watching for the rest of this series, but more for the next series against, presumably, Chicago. I like Thompson a little better for this series. Um, I don't think that Mozgov's ability to protect the basket is that useful, especially when Boston goes with more space. Boston doesn't have a ton of guys who can get the, to the rim. They really only have one in Isaiah Thomas. And Thompson was a monster on the offensive glass in this game, four offensive rebounds, and he was really ha- able to take advantage when the Celtics would get scrambled and into rotation. Olenek was not able really to handle him on the offensive glass. Uh, you know, He picked up a couple of fouls and, and forced a couple of team rebounds as well. Uh, where it went out of bounds and the or the Cavs got to keep the ball. So I thought he was really good. I'd probably play him a little bit more than Mozgov. He can also get out to the three-point line a little bit better. I mean, I think against better teams, Mozgov is probably a better option, but you know the Celtics don't have anyone who can drive. I also thought that Love's spacing was critical in this game, and then as the backup four, they went to James Jones, who played well in about 15 minutes. So the Cavs were able to get a lot of easy baskets to the rim. Part of that is because the Celtics don't have great guys protecting the rim, but also a lot of times they didn't even have anyone who could get there, much less block the shot because they were so worried about the perimeter shooting. So I think the the Cavs didn't have a ton of assists in this game, especially early on, which is always a concern for them. But, you know, their one-on-one guys are really, really good. Kyrie especially – shooting five of nine on threes, which were pretty much all of his makes were tough shots. And I think the Cavs are going to roll, but you know, both they and the Bulls not really going to be tested in this round, I don't think. And there are some things that both of those teams need to clean up or could 
optimized a lot more uh, that they may not be forced to do in these series. So it's going to be very interesting once they play each other in the second round. And it's also going to be hard because each of these teams is facing an opponent in the first round that is dramatically different than their second-round opponent. The Celtics, their strengths are very, very different than the Bulls, so they they can work on some of those things, but some of them, you're, you're, you talked about the idea of a crucible, you're not going to be forging it against something even remotely similar to what you're going to be facing, so you can do that, but I think it makes the task substantially harder, because, and it goes the same way for the Bulls, because the creators that... Cleveland has all over the floor, particularly Kyrie and LeBron, but what they're getting in all those spots are not really replicable in other places, especially not on a Milwaukee team as they're presently constituted. Let's move on now to Brooklyn and Atlanta. Uh, Do you see anything from Brooklyn in this game, uh, despite the fact that it was close at the end, that makes you think they'll be at all a challenge for the Hawks? Nope. I'll make that short. Nope. (laughs) You know, I think it was... A little, some causes for concern again with the Hawks. I mean, and it's a little unfair because, you know, you think back to even some of the great teams of all time, you know, the, for example, the 97 Bulls had some close games against the then Washington Bullets Mm -hmm. in the first round, you know, though they swept that series, they had two close games, you know. So, I mean, we kind of grade these favorite teams on, maybe a tougher scale than they should if they're still winning. I mean, you win by seven, you know, that's that's not bad. They controlled the game pretty much the entire way. Uh, but I thought Brooklyn played reasonably well. They got a lot of open shots that they just couldn't knock down. Joe Johnson was 0 of 6 on threes. Pretty much all of his shots were wide open. Boyan Bogdanovich was 1 of 5. Same thing for him. 5 out of 20 for the Nets total on threes. I thought they could have really made a lot more of those shots than they did. Uh, one concerning thing for the Nets offensively, though, Brooke Lopez, sixth on the team in shot attempts with only seven. He was six out of seven from the field, and then he did shoot six free throws as well. Uh, and actually, most of his shots came off the offensive glass where he really uh, dominated with six offensive rebounds. Thaddeus Young had five, and... And it's, you know, you want to say, all right, you know, we don't want to waste all of our possessions on post-ups. That's not an efficient way to score, blah, blah. Well, Joe Johnson had a million ISO post-ups, and he was 6 out of 17 in this game. You know, and and Thaddeus Young was 7 out of 16. Uh, Darren Williams and and Bogdanovich even, like, posted up a little bit. Jared Jack, although he shot 5 out of 8, had plenty of mid-range attempts in his 16 minutes. So, I mean, I think Brooke Lopez, especially when you've got Horford in there, Brooke Lopez is going to have to space out to Horford. Get him back. Horford is someone who's always been undersized as a center. Get Try and get Lopez some post-ups up close and see if you can get some double teams and and take advantage because it's going to be tough for, for Lopez to guard. You might as well at least force Horford to defend him as well. Yeah, when you see Brooke Lopez, when you see a guy get seven a big guy gets seven field goal attempts and six offensive rebounds. You think it's going to be one of those, you know, those hustle guys, those, you know, the Reggie Evans types. It's not going to be one of the best offensive big men in the league. And in a way, somewhat even more disturbingly for me, Mason Plumlee didn't take a shot. And when you have a guy who is the backup center in that role and he he got a couple rebounds and things, like that, I, I think you want him to be assertive and to be doing that. He also had no offensive rebounds. You want to see more 
from that because that's a place where you can press not an advantage, but where you can actually force Atlanta to be at least uncomfortable. And if you want to really try to win this series, I feel like the inside is a very important part of it. I also want to do a little tribute to Markel Brown for getting the Keith Bogans Memorial start and six <laughs> minutes played, which was impressive. The funny thing was he played pretty well. He had a nice tip dunk. He had some effort plays out there, and then he was gone. Yeah, he tried to do a little too much. He had, had a couple of turnovers, dribbling really more than you might have expected. I think the big problem with him was he didn't do an unbelievable job on Corver. And so if you're if he's not gonna guard Corver very well, not necessarily much reason to have him out there. Also they wanted to get Bogdanovich in who had been very good in the last few games before then. Um one more point on the Nets. They were able to force a lot of double teams from Atlanta. Atlanta is very good, very disciplined help defense and uh, you know, Damari Carroll especially is a guy who is able to get into the lane, get to the nail, and still get out to shooters. But Brooklyn just didn't have good enough passing and spacing to take advantage of what the Hawks were doing defensively, double teaming. So that's something they're going to want to look at. Uh, but, you know, that's something that you also have to build through a culture throughout the entire year, moving the ball and having the right kind of spacing. That's not something the Nets are known for. How did you think that Dennis Schroeder looked? First playoff game, young guy. I thought he looked pretty good. Yeah, he wasn't bad. He had 13 points on uh, 10 shooting possessions, so he was efficient offensively. I do think that with both he and Teague, we talked about the playoff crucible and, and weaknesses. I think the Nets had some success going under the screens on those guys, and those guys are going to have to hit some shots because the, the Hawks are really a big trouble when those point guards can get in the lane. And I think especially if it's going to be a two, that those guys, uh, that's really the poison that they want to pick is making those guys make some shots. I love the guy on a personal level, but I'm a little bit concerned about Kent Bazemore because now that Tabo's not going to be playing in the playoffs, that to have a guy who I think his best role is defending point guards, but when you're playing Schroeder and Teague, you don't really need somebody to do that. And who the other team doesn't have to respect in the same way as they do everybody else. I feel like it's not going to be as big a storyline in this series, but I, I think about a round or two from now, that could be a much bigger thing. Yeah, and you, you saw that he's really the only other kind of big wing that they have, and Coach Bud went to Schroeder uh, Antigua at the same time. Some Shelvin Mack played a few minutes as well. So they looked to minimize Bazemore's minutes. He only played 16 minutes. Um, we'll also say Schroeder and Teague both had four turnovers apiece, which is not very good. Um, that's something that'll need to improve. Um, and then obviously the bigger, probably the biggest long-term issue in this game uh, is the Hawks' injury concerns. Paul Millsap, 2 of 9 against the Bulls on Wednesday, as we talked about in the preview. 2 of 11 in this game did not really mix it up inside at all, despite being guarded by Thaddeus Young. He's got the strength advantage on Young and did not appear comfortable using that in his isolations, which he got plenty of. And then Horford, 5 out of 12, but he dislocated his pinky on his right hand. We didn't really see him shoot much afterwards, although he did shoot one shot with his right hand from the right side that went off the side of the backboard which would kind of indicate to me that he wasn't really able to push with that pinky very hard. If it goes off the right side of your hand, it's going to go too far to the right. That could be speculation. It's only one shot, but that's going to be something to watch, those two injuries, because 
those two guys and Corver are really what make the Hawks the Hawks uh, with the spacing and the ball movement that they provide. Yeah, I, the other thing when as I was going through this was I I kept on thinking about was how fortunate they are that the Bulls ended up getting the three seed because if that series was happening much more quickly and also they only have to face one of Cleveland and Chicago, I would be much more concerned because I it'll take them some time. But now, presumably, I, I I'm guessing considering how the Washington Washington Toronto game turned out that those teams aren't going to challenge Atlanta too much. So they have a little bit of time to get right, but they still have to actually do it. Yeah, and I think Washington is is a team that could potentially give the Hawks some problems with their defense. That was probably the most disappointing aspect of the Hawks' performance to me was that they weren't really able to score much against what's a totally mediocre Nets defense. And people talked about the Hawks missing open shots. It was more glaring to me, frankly, the Nets open threes that they missed. The Hawks were only 10 out of 30, but I didn't feel like they were getting that many amazing looks from three. You know, I mean, you had the guys who were missing were guys like Schroeder, got, you know, Bazemore, Teague, Perontic, Horford took two threes, although he shoots some okay from the corners. Millsap, like it wasn't like, you know, Kyle Korver went one out of 10 or something. So, or, or Carroll, who was two out of six, he was fine. So, that's a little bit of a concern. They just they did well in the first quarter and then didn't do much after that. Why don't we move on now to Memphis Portland? Not really a ton to say about this game. Um, I mean, we we said in our preview that Lillard and Aldridge had to be the two best players on the floor, and they certainly were not in this game. They combined for 18 out of 55 shooting and didn't get a ton of help from anyone else. Overall, 34 percent shooting. 30% on threes for the Blazers and not a ton of free throws. So really, they just couldn't get the offense going. And Memphis looked pretty good uh, with their defense. And really, uh, Mike Conley and Bano Udrich, the only guys who scored particularly efficiently for Memphis. But that was plenty. Udrich was awesome, 20 points on 15 shooting possessions. And he also had seven assists and seven rebounds. So wonderful game for him. And... You know, not a great commentary on the um, not a great commentary on the point guard defense for the Blazers, which is no surprise. Yeah, de- definitely no surprise. I didn't, unfortunately, wasn't fortunate enough to cover the, to be able to watch much of this game. Did you see much from Portland to give you hope that they can be more competitive, other than the fact that Lillard and Aldridge can have better games? Yeah, I mean, Lillard was pretty broke from outside. He was 0 out of 6 on threes, and it wasn't all bad shots. He also really struggled to finish at the rim, which is something he'd improved at, but he was getting in there and just kind of throwing up some really high, crazy layups. He really needs to do a little better job of seeking contact or going up stronger. C.J. McCollum was miserable, 1 out of 8 in 37 minutes, so he's someone who's going to have to play a little better. Um not not really someone who I felt like his late season surge was as sustainable as you might think because he relies on hot shooting from the mid-range a lot. And Robin Lopez, only 19 minutes. He's going to need to do more. He only scored two points. And it's, uh, it, it's going to be tough sledding for Portland. I think it might have been in the series even if they were fully healthy. But without a Flalo, without Wes Matthews, obviously, without even Darrell Wright, they're just so thin on the wings. Um, 
the last the last point I'll make is the game kind of got away from Portland uh, starting in the second quarter. That's when Dave Yeager actually went small with Jeff Green at the four, and he was also playing with Tony Allen. Meanwhile, since the Blazers don't have a backup four, it was Myers Leonard playing the four, and in that two minutes, I forget how much they got scored by, but I think it was like you know an 8-0 run or something like that to push the lead up close to 20. Um, Stotts had Myers Leonard. Again, same sort of thing with the stretch four. If you got the bigs in there, they had Myers Leonard guarding Jeff Green, who abused him on a couple of plays. Should have had Leonard on Tony Allen, who's not going to shoot the ball. Leonard can kind of camp out in the lane a lot more. But, you know, again, that was, this game wasn't close, but that's another kind of small coaching thing that's going to need to be cleaned up. Leonard actually played a little better in garbage time, hit a couple of threes, so maybe it'd be possible to get some more scoring. But, it, I mean, if Portland, if the Stars don't play better, then Portland sunk regardless of anything else in the series. Yep, I definitely agree with that. Let's move on to the last game, what I think a lot of us consider the headliner game, which was Spurs at Clippers. To me, the story, among other things, was Chris Paul. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think both Paul and Griffin were awesome. Yeah. Uh, Paul, another wonderful first game of the playoffs against a great opponent. Um You'll remember he was just unbelievable. I think it was eight and nine out of on threes in that game one against Oklahoma City that no one remembers now when they stole home court advantage from them before they ended up giving it back in game five. I um, I admit to forgetting about that. That definitely did happen yeah, though. That, that that game it was in a blowout, but it was one of the all time great playoff performances. Like let's not forget about that. Uh, you know, especially because everyone rags on Chris Paul. That was a, a great game, and he was almost as good as this game in this game. Uh, 22 shooting possessions, 32 points on those. Had three turnovers, but two steals, six assists, and just all jump shots, basically, from Paul. At per usual, I think he scored 90% of his points going to his right hand, but, you know, if you can't stop him from getting there, it really doesn't matter very much. Um, And the other thing I saw was Griffin was another guy in playing 43 minutes, was just so much more aggressive attacking the basket than we saw during the regular season. He published that Players' Tribune piece saying he was kind of taking it easier on dunks and, you know, trying to preserve his career. And we talked about maybe, you know, he's not as explosive. Well, he certainly looked at it in this game. He just posterized Aaron Baines twice, uh, both times in sort of a snug pick-and-roll action on the left side of the floor. The first time, Paul just threw this amazing whip pass to him. And the second time, Griffin kind of dribbled down. Usually he'll do some kind of a handoff to Paul, but then he spun out of it and dunked all over Baines as the help defender again. So uh, Blake Griffin looking bouncy. And uh, the other thing I thought was great was the Clippers' defense. What did you see from that? Yeah, the Clippers' defense was was doing really well, something you talked about on Twitter and is something that I noticed periodically is Danny Green's inability to dribble. And I thought they did a good job with that. I thought that the, the Spurs... To me, it was that they weren't getting the looks that they normally get. Some people were saying that they were missing the shots. To me, I, I didn't see as many just those beautiful, clean looks that I saw. And the only other thing I wanted to mention, and we'll go back to the defenses, Blake Griffin was 8-10 from the line. And if he can do that more regularly, then that totally changes the complexion of this Clippers team, too. Yeah, both. Another guy who deserves a lot of credit, actually, is Matt Barnes in this game. Defensively, he did pretty well on Kawhi Leonard, who was still efficient but didn't get a ton of shots and had four turnovers. Um, but his help defense really was 
was fantastic. He was able to get into the lane, get out to shooters, and just the overall activity of Barnes, Griffin, and Jordan was wonderful. Jordan, Jordan and Griffin were able to get out on the pick and roll, switch when necessary on their guys, and they really outclassed the non-Tim Duncan bigs for the Spurs. That was really the biggest weakness. Uh, Tiago Splitter was only able to play 10 minutes in this game, the first five minutes of each half. And when they went to Aaron Baines, or even when they went to Dio, Dio was two out of 12. He had a miserable shooting night. Baines, uh, you know, probably won't want to check social media for quite a while after those two dunks. He was two out of seven, didn't do much on the glass or, or defensively either. And, you know, so it was really uh, it was really a struggle for those guys. We may see the Spurs go with Kawhi Leonard at the four a little bit more and see how that works uh, in future games if they can't get more production out of that four spot. Another storyline that I want to watch for the rest of the series, but particularly in Game 2 with the Spurs, is that only Kawhi played over 30 minutes. He played 33. Danny Green only played 22. Parker played 29. And the Spurs have done an amazing job, Popovich, over the years, particularly in recent years, of giving their starters rest. And the assumption is always that they'll do that to, to kick him in the playoffs. I firmly believe that they will. But I was surprised considering, while this game never really got, I would say, you know, close, I remember getting to seven, I think, in the fourth quarter, that they didn't maximize those guys this early, considering that this is going to be a tough series by any stretch. Yeah, no, they didn't. I mean, and they haven't gotten the production out of those bench guys nearly as much as they have in past years. But the big problem for the Spurs was the offense in this game. You know, they only scored 92 points. It was a pretty fast game, over uh, pretty much around 100 possessions. I didn't do the stats at the very end, but I was doing them throughout. So they were well less than a point per possession pretty much throughout the entire game. Uh, I think they may need to play Patty Mills a little bit more. He's someone who only played 10 minutes. His shooting as, as a backup, I think, is very important, uh, especially taking advantage of those all-bench units for the Clippers. Thankfully, those were minimized. They got smoked in the first half. But then in the second half, Doc, after really only about two minutes, brought back uh, Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. He felt good doing that with them having uh, three days off until one, I guess two days off with the next game being on Wednesday. Um, so uh, after watching this game, are you how are you feeling about the Spurs' chances? Should we be worried about them, or is this just one game, you know, they didn't shoot well, whatever? I think... I lean more towards it being one game. I think the Spurs' offense wasn't as good as it usually looks. I also think this was the best game that I've seen this season that Blake and Chris Paul played collectively. Obviously, they've had some great games individually. So you think of this as a game that was more on the on the high side of the Clippers' possibilities and maybe on the low side of the Spurs. But at the same time, it takes one off the table. You can't You can't win this game now. It's over. And it also showed Doc's willingness to not play his backups who other than other than his own son. And that is a concern because the, the Spurs' best chance is for the starters not play. But one thing that I want to talk with you about is this, the Clippers kept in their starters after the game was functionally over. I believe it was about three minutes that they stayed in. And while you could think of three minutes as not being that important and they have a couple of days off, I was concerned not only because of the potential of just an ancillary injury, because especially in the first two minutes of those final three, the Spurs were still playing. They were still trying things. But also just because there was no reason to add that cumulative time. You can just give it to somebody else. I, I It's not like I'm 
indignant or anything, but I did think that it was a a correctable error that could have been a bigger problem than it turned into. Yeah, they they the last three minutes the Spurs went with their their really their backups. Jeff Ayers was in, you know, Mills was in, you know, Bellinelli. And it was a little weird. They're up 17 with under three minutes to go. And and if you think about it, usually a, w- a way to think about the odds of a comeback is if you're doing rough math, it's basically you're going to get two possessions every minute. So with three minutes left, unless you start fouling, you've basically got six possessions left and you're down 17. So you basically would have to make six out of six on threes and not let the other team score at all. If you're going to come back, that's basically the greatest comeback with three minutes left in NBA history. Not going to happen. Probably okay to pull your starters there, but again, you know, not, not a huge point. Um, and I think one thing I did want to talk about a little bit is Popovich. Well, I guess there's two things. One is Popovich. Again, we talked about this in the new Orleans game, Marco Bellinelli, uh, played 19 minutes, Green only 21. Granted, Bellinelli shot a lot better than Green, uh, so maybe that was justified in this game. Corey Joseph, 12 minutes, Patty Mills, 10, in a game that they're really struggling to score. Um, Joseph has played, they've played better with Joseph than with Mills this year, but I think Mills is so important to them really being able to uh, run up the score offensively, and they're struggling to score. I think we might see more of him. Uh, coming on, and maybe maybe we'll even see more Matt Bonner instead of uh, Baines, you know, because Baines was really pretty much ineffective defensively. You might as well get some spacing out there with Bonner. The last thing, though, is Pop did go to the hack of DeAndre Jordan at the end, and uh, where do you stand on the whole, oh, we should outlaw this practice, you know, it's terrible for the game versus just make your free throws? I think that it's I would be fine with them keeping it the way that it is. I understand the logic of having guys, you know, be able to do everything. I'm somebody who hates the designated hitter in baseball because I feel like people should have to do everything. However, I would fully support the idea of specifically penalizing non-basketball plays. I think that's easy to separate. If a guy's being fouled just not as a part of the play, in other times in the game, that that's a problem. You know, you get, you get those shots and, and everything else. I, I feel like that would be fine. The other option that I'm totally cool with is to be able to decline the shots. I think that that's fine, too. I uh, Those, to me, aren't revolutionary. They're just make the game more watchable without punishing it. I feel like... And then what you get into then is then if you don't want somebody to go to the line, then they don't have to touch the ball. That changes the way you defend them and everything like that. Do you do you agree with me on the general contours? or there There's lots of ground to disagree as well. Yeah, you know, I always kind of I go back and forth on this because big guys have so many advantages in basketball, and frankly, let's be honest, they're not as skilled as little guys are. They're they can play hard, but the big reason they're out there is because they can jump and because they have long arms, you know. And so, just that seems like one way. It's like, all right, you, you, if you're going to play, even if you have these physical advantages, you got at least be able to execute this one very easy fundamental skill. At least a lot of people would say that it's easy. So it, that's that's one way. But on the other hand, it is an eyesore, and this is an entertainment business, and you know you don't want to turn off casual fans. They ultimately end up paying everyone's salaries, including the media. So yeah, I feel it both ways. I think a more interesting way to look at it, at least in the short term, though, is if you are Doc Rivers, 
what do you do? Are you going to take out DeAndre Jordan? Uh, what's your strategy? The biggest challenge for them is that they don't have a competent replacement. I mean, they're they're in this circumstance. Yeah. They're they're in this circumstance where. Or are you going to put in Spencer Hawes? You're going to put in Big Baby? I mean, that has some other impacts. And we saw DeAndre. I mean, I think that his defensive player of the year case was overrated, but I do think he can be a, a substantial positive on that end. And his offense, you know, he can he can get tip dunks. He can be an he can be an offensive rebounding guy. So I would be very uncomfortable doing that. But you know, could could I envision a circumstance where? that curtails their offense enough to do that and that having the advantage of disjoining the Spurs offense isn't really there. Sure. So, but, and I think that, that I can understand why you might want to get that out of the game. But at the same time, the, the, for me, the prevalent thing there is that they don't have a replacement. Yeah, that's, that's a big part of it. And worth noting that Spencer Hawes played two minutes and 32 seconds in this game. Yep. Uh, did nothing except uh, commit a personal foul in the box score, but I'll tell you what I would do if I were Doc Rivers, especially in this situation. They were up, I think, by six when it started. They'd been playing great defense, and my thought is, all right, you know what? Let's just let. I'm just going to let DeAndre Jordan keep shooting, and if we lose the lead, if we lose all six points off this lead, then all right, you know what? Maybe I'll consider taking him up. Mm-hmm. But we have we have the lead. If you want to try and score against us, San Antonio, you already aren't scoring. You want to try and score against our set defense every time. Uh, go ahead, and you know what? I'm going to make in the long term view. I'm going to make you just follow him 50 times. You know, unless we get down by like five points, ten points, I'm going to just make you just keep following him. And you know, a few things are going to happen. One is it might just get to finally reach critical mass where the legal say, "All right, we're not letting this happen anymore. This is a travesty." You know, it'll reach a point where because I think now. Yeah, all right, it's annoying, but it only goes on for five minutes until either they give up or uh, the team takes the guy out. You know, I would say, no, you're going to have to do this literally 50 times, and I'm not going to give in, and I'm not going to give up. And if you want to get your entire team in foul trouble or, you know, be in the bonus, that's fine. You know, let's it's going to come back to haunt you, or you're going to have to put in guys who aren't your frontline players and try and score on me that way against the set defense, again, because you need your to save your front-line players for later, they can't all get into foul trouble. So that, that would be my approach. And, you know, I, I would I would try and call Coach Pop's bluff if I could. Um, the one last thing that I would note on this is Pop was executing the strategy, really only did it, I think, for three possessions, but didn't, you know, he still had Baines in, which doesn't make any sense at all uh, because you're not playing any defense, so you better... Why not just have you know all offensive players out there, Tim Duncan and four shooters or whatever you want to roll with? Uh, you know, having having guys who aren't good offensive players makes no sense when you're following. Um, but I don't know. What do you think about? What do you think about just calling the guys bluff? I really like it. I think that it's it's a great way to do it. I also agree with you. The other the other way that you could do uh, that I've thought of if you're going to do the fouling pretty much no matter what is you get guys who are good at generating steals and you try to go for traps and steals and then you have one other person whose job is to, as soon as they break it, just foul DeAndre. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe that could, could work also. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to think about it when if you just decide we're not going to have to play defense that it opens up a few options for you. But 
Actually, anyway, there, there was yeah. one I wanted to bring up. In yeah. I'm not sure if it was accidental, but it seemed like it might have been deliberate. In the Celtics-Cavaliers game, the Cavs had an outlet pass to go to a fast break, and a guy yeah, in the backcourt got fouled. And I was like, that's how you do it. If you're gonna, if that you use the tactical fouls, those are also exactly the type of fouls I was talking about earlier that I, I would like to see out of the game. But while they're allowed right now, go for it because there you're you're actually taking points off the board. Yeah, I mean, and in that play, I think they threw an outlet to LeBron. And now it may have been that they had that fast break solely because they were planning on following Tristan Thompson on that play. But yeah, I mean, if he has, if someone like LeBron has a two on one. Yeah, go ahead and and follow someone who just uh, you know went for the defensive rebound or something. If you're not going to get back on D, it's 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 a good idea. Um, all right, so we got uh, what do we have tomorrow? Bulls, Bucks, and uh, we got Warriors, Pelicans. Both games too. Uh, we will be at that second game, and we'll have a full report tomorrow night. So uh, until then, I'm Nate Duncan with uh, Danny Larue. Uh, talk to you guys Monday. guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it instead let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level and with over 400,000 parts and a little nap of know-how he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is it's not perfect but it's perfect for him that's napa know-how